This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Tuesday the 10th of November. So ever since the beginning of this pandemic, Norman, we've known that animals have been a factor. We're pretty sure that the coronavirus originated in bats. Maybe it came through another animal on its way to humans. And there's been a lot of surveillance around whether there are other animals that can catch the coronavirus from us that could then create other places where it could mutate and grow and transmit from. And one of these animals that has been identified is mink, little cute furry animals. And in Denmark, it's seen to be such a problem there that they're culling 17 million of them. How much should we be worried about coronavirus in mink? Quite a lot. The uh, small carnivorous mammals like mink and like ferrets are sensitive to SARS-CoV-2. They do catch it. And in fact, there's a ferret colony at the CSIRO in Melbourne where they've tested animal testing of vaccines uh, to see whether the vaccines might work because the coronavirus behaves in the ferrets pretty much like humans. And it turns out that mink are susceptible to the coronavirus too. And it was first noticed, I think it was first noticed in the, in the Netherlands, certainly was noticed in the Netherlands. And they had a version of the virus called N501Y. Now, N501Y actually has occurred in, in Australia. There was a cluster of N501Y in Victoria, and it's now gone extinct. But in fact, there was a benefit to this, uh, interestingly, is they found that it easily infected laboratory mice. And that's turned out to be a really good model for testing vaccines in the laboratory. So there's been a nice side effect from that. Coming back to the Netherlands, there was evidence of human spread. And there was evidence from people who'd caught N501Y, not from mink, but just had got it anyway, that when you looked at their serum, their convalescent serum afterwards, they didn't have strong, what's called neutralizing antibodies to the virus. In other words, the serum wasn't killing the virus because this mutation is close to what's called the receptor domain of the spike protein where it locks into our bodies. So that made people wonder whether or not the vaccine would be effective because the vaccine is aimed at that part of the spike. And then in Denmark, same thing, but a different strain of the virus. This one's called N439K. Again, very common in humans in Europe. Again, gives very weak neutralizing antibodies in convalescent serum. And again, worried that it might affect the vaccine. All this is unpublished research and not not verified. So then the question is, are these two versions of the virus really a worry for vaccines? And there is Australian research. It's unpublished. There's not too much I can talk about it because of that. But there is Australian research looking at vaccines here, which suggests that the vaccine actually produces a much better immune response than natural infection, and it could overcome the problems of these variants of the virus. In other words, if you've got a variant of this virus, it will still be affected by the vaccine, which will still be protected, if you like, by the vaccine. At least that's the initial findings from the Australian research. So in theory, it's a worry, but in reality, it's probably not. The real worry is 17 million mink living with each other, exchanging viruses and maybe throwing off a new one. Well, when you've got the words mutant and animals, it really kind of pushes all the scary buttons and people have been sitting up and taking notice. And Lockie sent in a question to us asking about this, saying, with the new strain of coronavirus crossing from mink to humans, will the measures that the Danish government have taken be enough to stop the the strain spreading? And Lockie says, isn't it just inevitable that a new strain will emerge, causing any future vaccine to be useless? And he finishes with a little crying face emoji. (laughs) Well, 
it turns out this strain is already in the community, so it's the the, the mink has bought it. <laughs> but it, it hasn't, and I don't think it's come from mink. I think you have to assume that it's come from humans to the mink population. So there's not a lot of evidence yet that this is a purely mink strain. It looks like this is a strain of SARS-CoV-2, which you can see in humans as well as the mink. Could a, a strain of the virus emerge from somewhere which the vaccine doesn't protect against? The answer is yes. And the theory is here that if you dick around, to use a professional word, Love it. with um, the vaccine and you only immunise a small number of people and you do it tentatively, you could give the virus an opportunity to have mutants survive and mutate around the vaccine. Not deliberately, but there'll be mutants which are actually preserved because they are resistant to the vaccine. And you could artificially reinforce those versions of the virus. So the idea here with the vaccine would be to get it out there in as large a number of people as possible, as quickly as possible. So let's talk about vaccines a bit. And one of the things that we're doing is testing the vaccines and you've got to test them in a population that shows you whether they are working and whether they're safe. And because we don't know whether they're safe yet or not, often vulnerable groups are not included in vaccine trials, including older people. But we know that older people are the people who are at most risk of coronavirus and most at need of a vaccine. So why aren't most vaccine manufacturers testing them in older people? Well, that's a good question. And there's a study in JAMA Internal Medicine, which has shown that, in fact, when you look at the research that's been done into both treatments and vaccines, I mean, given that people older than 65 um, are, you know, 9 or 10% of the population, but they're 80% of the deaths, 40% of cases, you'd want to know whether or not the treatments and the vaccines work. And yet when you look at the studies, a very high percentage, between 20 and 50% of them, could actually end up excluding older people. And there's all sorts of reasons for there. They might have other illnesses. When they do trials, pharmaceutical companies like to have a pure population rather than a real-world population. It's a real problem of clinical trials. And really what the authors argue here is that the exclusions are not well justified and that really they should be testing these, these vaccines on as wide a range of the community and as, re- as relevant a range in the community as possible. So it is a worry if there's been significant exclusion of older people from these trials and it will limit the extrapolation of how effective these, uh, these drugs and vaccines could be. Just to put you on the spot, Norman, do you know if the drugs that the the vaccines that Australia has committed to having an agreement with the four vaccines that we talked about a couple of days ago, do you know if any of them have older people included in their trials? Because I know the University of Queensland one does, but that's a bit further down the line. All they've done here is rather than put the finger on particular vaccines that are problematic here, all they've done is listed the vaccines that they've looked at. And they include the the Oxford vaccine and I think the Moderna vaccine, which is the mRNA vaccine. So they've actually had a look at those and found that significant numbers have got a problem here. So it's very typical of the pharmaceutical industry, very naughty of the pharmaceutical industry. They want to get the perfect results and they mess around with the recruitment and spoil the opportunity for wide generalizability. And a question here from Peter on Victoria. Peter's saying, Norman, do you really believe all these Victorian zeros, these donut days that they're saying that they're having? How can they have gone from cases for 150 days to zero, zero, zero? 
Uh, have they changed something significant in the way they're sampling or testing or reporting? No, I don't think so. I believe it. How they've done it is through lockdown, through social distancing, through getting better testing and contact tracing. The testing numbers are right up there. I mean, Victorians are doing a fantastic job of coming forward for testing in large numbers. A few weeks ago, they were down, but now they're up. So all of it seems to be right. I haven't heard any reports recently of sewage testing to see whether they're missing something. But um, yeah, I believe it. I don't think there's very much missing here. And one final question from Trevor. We were talking the other day about whether having scotch might kill the coronavirus and we talked about the placebo effect and perhaps maybe it would make you feel better. Well, Trevor's saying, Norman, placebo effect aside, would gargling scotch help treat a COVID infection? Would the alcohol nip the virus? (laughs) Thanks, Trevor. The answer is nobody really knows. Alcohol in the mouth might kill some of the virus that's there on the surface, but not necessarily beneath the surface. So you might get a a temporary effect. For example, it could neutralise the effect of the swab, in theory, if you actually cleared the virus temporarily. But the virus is sitting there and is liable to come out to play after the alcohol's disappeared. Yeah, and I would think if you're having a nasal swab, you wouldn't want to be snorting scotch no matter how much you like the smell of it. That's absolutely right. Well, that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today. Please continue to send in your questions, even if it's still about snorting scotch, and go to abc.net.au slash coronacast, click Ask Your Question, and mention Coronacast on the way through so we can pick it up. We'll see you tomorrow. We'll see you then. <laughs> 